This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library Main Branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's unsupervised learning. A short preface on this podcast, uh, which is going to be about E.O. Wilson. Uh, I initially had a conversation with David Sloan Wilson uh, about his legacy. uh, No relation. I want to point that out. Uh, David Sloan Wilson, uh, you know, overlapped with a lot of E.O. Wilson's, um, you know, scientific uh, thoughts and ideas in evolutionary biology and group selection. I thought it was going to be, you know, kind of a love fest. But, uh, you know, David Sloan Wilson... uh, was much more even-handed and talked about, you know, the mixed legacy and, you know, where E.O. Wilson, he felt, came up short. So uh, it was not actually what I thought it was going to be, which just goes to show that, you know, uh, you never know where a conversation is going to go. Uh, I also have a short, uh, append, uh, I appended another podcast uh, from Charles Mann, who some of you have listened to, uh, author 1491, 1493, etc., And he had some tussles uh, in the environmental writing space uh, as an environmental writer with E.O. Wilson. And he has some, like, not flattering uh, interactions that he wants to tell us about. And uh, the reason I'm doing this is because uh, I don't want to do a hagiography, and I don't agree with E.O. Wilson about everything. And, you know, people always like to say, oh, I don't agree with so-and-so-and-so on a lot of things, but I agree with them. I don't like doing those sorts of things, you know, normally, because who agrees with with everything? you know, with other people, right? But, um, you know, E.O. Wilson has just passed, and, you know, this is kind of a time for celebration uh, to a great extent, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I want people to know just kind of like the full reality of who he was, and I encourage people to read his books, to read his works, but also, like, keep in mind that, you know, uh, he, he was great, a great one has passed, but he was no god, and, uh, you know, he was fallible, he was a human being, and that's 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 the great thing about his science. Uh, he was a human being that produced it, a human being with, uh, you know, all the regular frailties and weaknesses that a lot of us have. So, uh, uh, in that spirit, I want you to uh, just listen to the podcast. You know, understand that I'm not here to, uh, you know, celebrate him necessarily without any reservation. Uh, I want people to get a fuller sense of who this person was, and kind of think about uh, how science thought. Uh, intellectual production, production, how it moves forward uh, and perfects our understanding of the world out there, despite the fact that we ourselves are imperfect people. So uh, with that, uh, David Sloan Wilson, he's going to go on for about an hour. And then I got like 20 minutes in the back end with Charles Mann. And he has some anecdotes about E.O. Wilson and, uh, you know, his passion for the environment, which sometimes uh, led to him being uh, pretty rude uh, to people who disagreed with him. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Razib here with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. So I am here uh, to do something a little different on this episode than I normally do. Uh, I often talk to researchers, commentators, and whatnot um, about their scholarship or what their projects are. Uh, I want to talk with uh, Dr. David Sloan Wilson uh about somebody else's life, uh, somebody who recently passed as of this recording, uh, E.O. Wilson, uh, who was a quite famous evolutionary biologist. Yeah, he lived to the ripe old age of 92. 
uh, you know, his career spanned the 50s, you know, literally down to 2021 because he is uh, was still writing and uh, being interviewed and he was still a public figure uh, down to the end. Uh, so David, um, you know, he is a professor, emeritus professor of biological sciences and anthropology at Binghamton University. Uh, he is the founder of the Evolution Institute. And some of you who have listened to my previous podcast know of his work uh, from his previous books, uh, Evolution for Everything, Darwin's Cathedral, and whatnot. Um, and he also has a recent spinoff, which I actually don't know about. Maybe we can talk about that later, uh, Pro Social World. Uh, David, uh, you know, no relation to E.O. Wilson, um, is somewhat similar in that he uh, takes an interest in many different things. And so um, I think it's it's great that David is on here to talk about E.O., who he did, did know somewhat. And um, if you haven't, uh, please read uh, David's uh, Remembrance of E.O. Wilson uh, at the View of Life, the Six Legacies of E.O. Wilson. I'll put the, I mean, the, the links are in the show notes there. So just check that out. And um, I'm going to let um, David uh, go right now because he has something he wants to read uh, before we start uh, talking about E.O. Wilson. Well, thanks, Razib. And I'll read that something that quote a little later on in our interview when it becomes apropos. But, you know, I'll take you up on okay. my, uh, uh, that me being no relation with Ed Wilson uh, just shows you how we privilege genes. It's, it's true that uh, there's no genetic relationship between me and Ed Wilson. Uh, but no relation? Well, actually, no. I mean, there's huge cultural relations, and and um, and uh, I, I bring that up somewhat humorously mm -hmm. because actually uh, our conversation is going to be all about the what what is evolution? Is evolution just genetic evolution? Is there more to evolution than yeah. that? Uh, and so uh, that's a good way to kind of introduce a major theme as to what we mean when you say I'm no relation to to um, Ed Wilson in the colloquial sense. Uh, so we'll, yeah. uh, I look forward to getting into that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's totally true. Um, and, you know, I have been spending uh, the past week emailing people about Ed Wilson and E.O. Wilson, and it's interesting how his influence on uh, cultural evolution is uh, uh, not – uh, well known, but people in the field uh, do um, you know owe him a lot, and they acknowledge that. So uh, we will get into that. Uh, I want you to talk. So you talked about like you you're not uh, genetically uh, related. Well, actually, you are genetically related, just not a close near kid, right? Compared to a uh, chimpanzee, ninety nine percent of our genes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, but uh, you you did know him as a person. You had various interactions with him, and I know th I I know this from your books. Uh, some of the books have autobiographical aspects, and you talked about your interactions with him. Now, you know he was a very, uh, you know, connected, networking type of scientist. You knew a lot of people, but can you talk about uh, your um, interactions with him, academic, personal, just what type of person he was? Well, yeah, because the way he entered my life illustrates the the different the the the, um, the legacies that I uh, that I talk about. At first, I mean, what his passing just resulted in all these out, kind of outpourings of appreciations from people that he touched, often as students, and his positive and nurturing attitude. I mean, he just made people that is coming into the field feel wonderful and so on. And so my first encounter of him was that kind. I was a student. I'm 20 years younger than him. I was a grad student. He was a famous professor sitting in on some project reports. And I gave my project report. And, and he said, that's new, isn't it? And I was on 
cloud nine. I mean, I actually went out and got drunk that night because I was so thrilled that the great Ed Wilson had, had said something nice about my my work. And then the second time was when I'd wrote my first paper on group selection, which we'll be getting to. And I contacted him to sponsor it in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And once again, he was in the role of a facilitator. So he graciously said, oh, please come visit me, which I did. And and he gave me a tour of his ant lab, which he does to everyone. And and then he sat me down in front of a blackboard and he said, you have 20 minutes until my next appointment. And uh, and then he ended up sponsoring that paper. So so that was the, you know, the, the kind professor um, that we all all professors should be as kind and and attentive as as Ed. And then the next time was when I myself was a professor. And then we interacted as colleagues to write uh, basically a revision of sociobiology called Rethinking the Theoretical Foundation of Sociobiology. And at that point, um, we were more equals. And in fact, I was the first author of that paper. Um, and he's always been gracious about that. When you look at his career and all the many collaborations he's had, he's very happy to be the assist, not just the, the center of attention. So it's in terms of if, if you if you love science and and the scientific process is meaningful for you, then I think that he was a really a great exemplar of of the scientific uh, process. Yeah. So uh, I will say I I never met him. I have lots of I mean like you. I have lots of people who are my friends who met him, and one of the things that I think does recur is he was a. Uh, a very um, gentlemanly uh, figure, a very gentlemanly person. And uh, a lot of people, and I don't know if you agree with this, attribute it partly, um, obviously probably like just his own innate disposition, but also uh, the Southern culture that he grew up in, uh, which, uh, shall we say, um, you know, it's a little different than, say, if you grew up in New York, you know? And so um, I think that that demeanor, uh, did give a lot of people like a you know a particular impression of him. Um, on the other hand, he was scientifically very competitive, and he he did have some intense relationships with various people, um, which you know of like and uh, are documented. For example, like James Watson. Um, do you know much about their their personal relationship? Like, did I ever mention that? Oh yeah, uh, he did. And also we got the, you know, the famous battle with Richard Lewinton and Stephen Jay Gould, uh, what was called the adaptation. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. And uh, back to the Southern gentleman, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, fascinating literature on cultures of honor, a wonderful book called cultures of honor by Richard Nisbet and Duff Cohen from an evolutionary perspective about Southern culture as being uh, on the one hand, very polite, but on the other hand, quick to offend. And um, it all kind of goes back to herding societies uh, where your property was movable and uh, there was no you know, centralized police force or anything like that. You had to protect your own reputation and your own, and your own property. And, and so that leads to a certain culture, which is um, a phrase from that book that uh, I remember to this day is, an armed society is a polite society. An armed society is a polite society. So, so um, and Ed had that competitive side. And, and uh, one of the things he said was that during the Civil War, the Confederate soldiers would do something. Um, a Confederate soldier would get on a horse and he would race back and forth in front of the Union lines, basically daring the Union soldiers to shoot him. And 
just as an act of bravado. And, uh, and Ed thought of himself as like that. <laughs> so, he, I mean, so he, he loved controversy. He thrived on controversy. He loved pissing people off. Um, uh, he loved uh, kind of challenging people for the next big thing. And, uh, and so there was that side of him as well. So, uh, and, it, and it is, I think it does trace to a large extent to uh, a Southern culture, as you say. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I want to uh, jump into Island Biogeography with some of his earlier work um, that in the sequence of your particular piece. I think that that's a good way to go. But, you know, we're alluding to his personality. We're alluding to his personal conflict. So um, let's just, like, not beat around the bush about the sociobiology controversies, the sociobiology wars. So, you know, publishes a book, Sociobiology, 1975. The last chapter is on humans. And then somehow all hell breaks loose. Uh, a lot of what I know about it um, is from Ulrika Segerstrahl's excellent book, Defenders of the Truth. Uh, there's yeah. been other people who've also written about it and that period. And the dramatis persona, I do have to say, uh, the dramatis persona of this 1970s conflict uh, is pretty incredible. Uh, the people that were involved in various ways, Lewinton, Gould, Ed Wilson, then you had Ernst Mayer there, Noam Chomsky's around, uh, across the pond, W.D. Hamilton and Richard Dawkins and John Maynard Smith. So all these people yeah. show up. But um, can you talk yeah. about um, yeah, Clifford, you, what you was... Left out some, you left out some names. Clifford Geertz, Marshall Solomon, oh. the sociologist. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you could go on uh, things. And so and you were uh, you you were a young academic at this time, right? Yeah, yo, know, I was just a grad student. I wasn't entering the scene. No, I was nowhere. There but, so, I mean, I was there, but I I wasn't a yeah. I wasn't a, a personage. But, did you have a particular impression of it, or was that like kind of like out of remove from you at your level at that time? No, I mean my my ringside seat is very. I think. Uh, has um, uh, a lot of perspective. It's something I try to do in my remembrance of that is is address the issue of icons in science. I mean, so what we have often is um, in the at least in the public imagination are these like these giants among Lilliputians, um, the Ed Wilsons, the Richard Dawkins, the uh, the Noam Chomsky's, the B. F. Skinner's. The Charles Darwin's, the the Sigmund Freud's, the the uh, who who are are treated so much attention is focused upon them, and that's a, a distortion of the actual scientific process, which is much more of a social process involving many many dozens of of people, and also events and circumstances and contingencies that go that are that are true for any historical process, and so. We have to really be careful about attributing too much importance to great people, always great men, almost always great men, in the same way that you know the great man view of history is just misinformed. So, so somehow we have to be telling a story about the history of science, and and then the people. Of course, these are talented people that did more than the average, but but uh, but uh, to not to fall into the fallacy that uh, that they that they uh, played a larger role than they, than, they, than they did. And often that status of icon is, I, is as I say in my piece, is thrust upon someone as much as, as, much as wanted. Uh, it's almost the need of the listener or the learner or the, um, to personify these, uh, these things. So it's against that background that I would want to talk about, you know, what happened in 1975 
uh, as a period. Uh, uh, and the most important thing to say about it is that for all of its explanatory scope, its amazing explanatory scope, uh, evolutionary science became highly gene-centric during the 20th century. As it was actually defined as, as, as in terms of genetic evolution. Natural selection mm -hmm. is a change in gene frequency, as if the only way that offspring can resemble their parents is by sharing the same genes. That's not how Darwin thought of it, because Darwin didn't know anything about genes. Mm -hmm. For Darwin, evolution was variation, selection, and replication by any mechanism. But the modern synthesis was this great constriction of thinking uh, to genetic evolution. And then cultural evolution was just marginalized. Evolutionary scientists walked away from the study of cultural evolution. And that's where things stood in 1975 when Ed wrote Sociobiology. And most of the book was about non-human species. And, and even, even, even they have cultural traditions, by the way. That's a big growth area in current science. But nevertheless, you know, there can be this great theory of sociobiology that explained the social behavior of all species from microbes to primates and, and all by genetic evolution. And then that final chapter on humans, which is all about genetic evolution, almost nothing at that part point about cultural evolution. And so when that book was critiqued for being genetically deterministic, well, that it was. And, and not just because of Ed, but because the entire, can I swear, the entire fucking field of evolutionary science had become gene-centric, and the study of culture had been ceded to other disciplines, and those disciplines all developed into rich bodies of information, but had no synthesis of their own, no synthesis of their own. So that's where things stood in 1975, which resulted in a big controversy. And and, and to understand the, the, the historical dynamic, before you mention any names, is I think essential. Uh, so that's not something that Ed did. It's something that was just the way things were at that time in the history of science. Yeah, so uh, I guess what you're trying to say is, you know, we are, you know, and I kind of did it with the dramatis persona, persona personifying these scientific currents, but the currents were already there. And, um, you know, the sociobiology controversy kind of emerged in the riptide of those broader cultural scientific currents. Yeah. Um, all right. And there's more to say about all of it. Um, and actually, let me just lay down another piece. Uh, which is the idea that um, that uh, Darwinian thinking uh, uh, led to a, a big epidemic of, of uh, toxic social policies justifying inequality, what's called social Darwinism. The idea that um, there's something exceptionally dangerous about Darwin's uh, uh, theory. Uh, that's a trope, um, and and it's, it's much more complicated uh, than that. Darwin also inspired Kropotkin, the socialist. Uh, Darwin inspired William James. Darwin inspired John Dewey. And so, and so Darwin was refracted through dozens and dozens of lenses. Um, and it's not the case that, uh, that uh, in fact, Darwin did not inspire Hitler, by the way, just to let you know. Uh, so, um, and on and on. So, I mean, the social history is is uh, is complicated, and the way I the way I, I I summarize it is that 
any tool can be used as a weapon. That's true for any theory. And evolutionary theory is no different than any other theory in that that regard. Mm-hmm. So so um, uh, we want to lay that down along with everything else. Yeah. I one hundred percent agree with you, and for the listener who want to go down this uh, rabbit hole, there's, there, you know, I think um, you go to this view of life. Uh, you know, they've talked about the issue of social Darwinism. My understanding is American understanding of social Darwinism, at least among the intelligentsia, is stra- is uh, strongly conditioned on Richard Hofstadter's uh, narrative, which a lot of people right. disagree with. And so this is. Um, kind of gives you a sense of how like these ideas these paradigms can go through one person's interpretive lens the person becomes the authority and then their particular opinion which might be idiosyncratic somehow becomes orthodoxy and so uh, i think that's what david is um you know frankly confronting here because i have actually tried to explain what social darwinism was where it came from and all these things and how spencer isn't how hofstadter describes him and people are just confused because they're like but this is what i was taught all through school so that's an that's just an interesting point to bring up there where it's like i think if you look at the history i think i think david here is correct but you know that's a lot of history and people have been told something for their whole life and you know they have priors and it it takes a while to change that i think eo wilson um at wilson was subject to the same thing in some ways because when i was younger i knew people who knew of him as a harsh reactionary uh conservative biologist uh, my understanding is he was a Democrat, pretty conventional political views <laughs> for an academic, you know, but um, he had been depicted by certain people in a certain way. And this view had become normative and, you know, orthodoxy in, to be frank, like more in like the humanities from what I can see, like these people that I'm talking about are humanists. And, um, you know, that's just like a matter of the way information flows through our culture and how reality uh, can differ from just kind of how it's depicted. Yeah, all of that, all of that. And there's, I mean, there's so many simplifications that take place and science is not immune from them at all. I, I bear the scars of that because group selection was so widely rejected when I became, when I was in graduate school, that it was just taught as a taboo. You don't think and that that's how it was learned. And so people just learned that group selection doesn't work and they, they weren't told why or they didn't question it much either. Um, it was just, the lore that was passed down, like in many other cultural traditions, and that made it exceptionally difficult to oppose because uh, uh, it just provoked a kind of a taboo, uh, taboo reaction. Uh, we like to think that science is not like that, and the best of science is not like that. But of course, science as practiced often is like that, and and so is scholarship. So I mean, when we look at um, uh, and I'm not the first person to say this, but when we look at fake news and all the terrible, terrible denial of, of science that, um, that has become so epidemic today. You know, in many ways, that can, be, that can be traced to relativism, the, the intellectual tradition of relativism um, uh, in the humanities and social uh, 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 sciences. And so, um, and that exists, you know, left and right. So, so life is that complicated, and science is a very precarious cultural system that's 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 threatened on all sides in many ways. Well, so I want to jump back now um, to island biogeography. Uh, so I'm not an ecologist, you know. I do know ecologists, you know. I, I know what the field is. Um, how important was Wilson's collaboration with uh, 
MacArthur in the 1960s and, and with Island Biogeography. So what I, my understanding, and this is as an outsider, is it was a big deal because it was kind of a formal, systematic way to understand um, these dynamics, whereas before a lot of the field had been purely descriptive. Yeah, and so uh, this enables me to get back to your previous uh, point about James Watson. Uh, so they were both assistant professors. In fact, they were the only two assistant professors in the biological department at Harvard. Everyone else was a had tenure. So just imagine you're an assistant professor, and the only other one is James Watson. Uh, <laughs> and um, and and just says, you know, Watson wasn't a very nice man. Other people have said that as well, kind of a disagreeable personality. And Ed had the misfortune of getting tenure first. Uh, so uh, that didn't go down very well with James. But um, but nevertheless, with the discovery of DNA, um, uh, Ed said in the first place, that astonished everyone. Uh, they, thought the, they thought that the code of life would be, you know, they wouldn't crack that code until the 21st century. And there it was just boom, just like, like that. And here's the, uh, the quote from Ed from an interview. Uh, he says, we have to go back to the 1950s. In the 1950s, the molecular revolution had begun. It was clear that the golden age of modern biology was going to be molecular and would endure a long time. In fact, it did occupy the second half of the 20th century and beyond. We felt here at Harvard immediately the pressure to start giving up positions to molecular biology. The dean of the faculty and the president at that time were entirely in accord. We found, I say we, the organismic and evolutionary biologists here, comparative anatomists, comparative zoologists, and so on, realized that we would not, um, we would not be given much additional space anymore, that we probably would not get many, if any, new positions for a long time. They would be reserved to build Harvard's strength in molecular and cellular biology. What this did was have a tremendous impact on me personally because I realized that those of us, my generation of what we came to call evolutionary biologists and organismic biologists, were not going to get anywhere by complaining by any means, but we were going to have to, and we should be tremendously excited to plan this, develop an equivalent to molecular biology on our own. <laughs> so... He saw the the import of what was happening with the with the uh, with what uh, with what Watson, uh, and he also said that he made friends with Watson later on. You know, they joined forces yeah. uh, later on, so he didn't hold a grudge or anything. But uh, but uh, that uh, gives you some of the dynamics and and where things stood with the with the onset of the molecular revolution in the 1950s. Yeah. Um... Well, you know, Ed, Ed's gone now, uh, so I can probably say this. I, uh, you know, in recent years, James Watson has uh, obviously, um, let's say his, his profile in public life has changed. Let's put it that way. Um, but um, I do know for a fact uh, that uh, Ed was one of the few people in Cambridge when he went to Cambridge that he would still visit. So um, I don't know if they ended their lives as friends, but they had an understanding. Uh, they had a long history, uh, an incredibly long history. And these are two giants in two different fields of biology. And, um, you know, it's just, it's interesting to observe. Uh, Watson's still here. So, um, you know, I, I won't say any more about that, but uh, well, they, I, I do know that. In, in his conversation with me, I think, uh, or maybe it's in the interview, he said, you know, 
getting back together with uh, Watson was like an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they had a common thread. I forget which one it was. Um, but, um, uh, and so, you know, um, and that's what we're, you know, that's what you homo sapiens is real good at, you know, forming and shifting alliances, depending upon what the, uh, what the uh, threats are. So uh, they had reasons to be in league and, and, um, and found it easy to do so just like the normal human being. It's coalition politics. And so speaking of coalitions, um, so I read the Alice Dreger interview uh, of Ed uh, in 2009. And in it, he kind of seems to express a, a bit of triumphalism in relation to the camp of of Gould and Lewinton uh, in terms of the importance of, uh, you know, just biology, evolutionary thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is that your impression uh, of where he stood, uh, you know, near the end of his life in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, history vindicated him? Well, uh, I would say i tell a slightly different story. So at the publication of Sociobiology, things stood where, where um, culture, the study of culture by evolutionary scientists. Obviously, culture was well studied by cultural anthropologists and sociologists, but there was no unity in any of that. I promise you that. Um, and there still isn't. There still isn't. So it wasn't until after sociobiology that evolutionary thinkers started to take culture seriously, and Ed was among them. So, you know, right after sociobiology, there was On Human Nature, there was uh, his book with Lumsden on gene culture coevolution, there was his... Uh, um, uh, so, uh, now, I don't think that Ed was, like, the most important person in that. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would go to people like uh, Rob Boyd and Pete Richardson, uh, yeah. As to the tradition that actually flourished on that on that uh, basis, but uh, Ed was right there among them, and then with the social conquest of Earth and and um, and uh, all of that, and so and so again, speaking systemically, the uh, last quarter of the twentieth century was was one in which evolutionary scientists went back to basics, and they just, and they defined Darwinian evolution as any process that combines the three ingredients of variation, selection, and replication, no matter what the mechanism of replication, no matter what the replication mechanism of replication. And it's there that cultural evolution began to step into its own, all the way up to the present, where we have wonderful work by people that you've interviewed, Peter Turchin, Joe Henrik, Kevin Land, wonderful, wonderful work, in which we now are able to see Evolution in Four Dimensions, to quote a title by Eva de Blanca and Miriam Lamb, and to really give dual inheritance theory, the idea that in our species, there's two separate streams of inheritance. One is genetic and the other is cultural. They're due, and to understand the relationship between them. Now, Gould didn't get that, and Lewinton didn't get that. It's not as if they got it right and that there was some kind of victory. Yeah. This is just, you know, this is integration taking place and, and we can feel really good about that and we, could, uh, and we can attribute it to many people, basically, as opposed to just these, these um, uh, damned icons yeah. that, we, that we have to. Well, I, I do have to say, um, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, Boyd and Richardson's work and, you know, I, I'm, friends, I'm friends with 
Pete Richardson, and he's got a new book out. I'm reading it right now, actually. He and his wife, Leslie. But in any case, um, I, I will say Lewinton panned Not by Jeans Alone, uh, the popular book that Boyd and Richardson wrote, I think, in 2006. Um, it wasn't totally clear to me what he didn't like about it, but I think he just didn't like the analytic framework and didn't think that it added anything. So, I don't know. That's that. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, Lewinton, I think... Um, uh, <clears throat> Oh, well, I, I think I think he, I think he had an analytic framework in mind already, <laughs> if you understand a nineteenth-century uh, well, I mean, analytic framework. Yeah, I mean Lewinton and Goel were Marxists, and they and they um, and so and that they I mean they were really politicized back then. And Lewinton's both of their stance on on adaptation, I think, was um, uh, you know very political, and um, and you know, that was. Uh, um, unfortunate. On the other hand, to give them their due, if you read some of the book, some of the work now on domestication um, and the domestication syndrome, that you know, when you select a behavior like docility, and all these other things get dragged along with it uh, because it's a developmental process that you're um, um, yeah. uh, selecting, uh, pleiotropy, and 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 all of that. Well, you know, that's very spandrels like, isn't it? I mean, you know, score. That's fair. You know, score one for uh, for the span the the um, uh, uh, spandrels of San Marcos. So so um, uh, yeah. So you know, this is how we learn. So so we've been talking about cultural evolution. I I don't want to um, ignore uh, evolutionary psychology, which uh, you know I don't know if you agree with this. A lot of evolutionary psychologists, and I think. Uh, you know, I think Sarah Blaffer-Hurdy has said it, and I think E.O. Wilson Wilson already said it with uh, Robert Wright in an interview. They feel that evolutionary psychology is this kind of descended, uh, like the modern form, at least of the form, uh, you know, postulated by Tubi and Cosmitis uh, in the 1980s as, as basically like a form of sociobiology, maybe a subset or a rebrand. I mean, what would you say about that? Not quite. So I'm happy to talk for a few minutes on on that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's there's two or three important points to to uh, make. Uh, in many ways, uh, Cosmides and Tubi um, formulated uh, evolutionary psychology uh, to go beyond behavioral ecology. So behavioral ecology, the connection between sociobiology and behavioral ecology is stronger. You're interpreting the behavior social plus plus solitary behaviors of organisms according to natural selection, but you're saying very little about mechanism. And what Cosmides and Tubi would say is that behaviors don't evolve, the mechanisms that cause behaviors evolve. And unless we get back down to the psychological mechanisms, then you're not really making enough progress. So that's what evolutionary psychology is. It was more mechanistically focused. And and so uh, I think that uh, therefore going beyond both sociobiology and behavioral ecology, and I think that's um, a fair point. So that's my first major point to make. But let me have you respond to that, and then I'll make my next point. No, no, I think I, I think that makes sense uh, in in terms of I, I think the evolutionary psychologist. Uh, I think Scott Atron has said that uh, you know some of the earlier work out of sociobiology was mind blind, and I think that's alluding to the same thing, like the focus on psychological right. mechanisms and massive modularity. Yeah, yeah. So I, that makes sense. So, but the next point to make is that the Cosmides Tubi version of, of evolutionary psychology was like completely gene centric. So, you know, the massive modularity thesis is that 
all of these modules evolve by genetic evolution, and then they get triggered in environments. And so you have to go back to the Pleistocene to explain the, the human mind. It's very, very gene-centric. And they created a polarization between evolutionary psychology as they saw it and what they call the standard social science model. What was that? That was B.F. Skinner. That was Clifford Geertz. That was, that was um, um, uh, you know, the blank slate. That was, that was just like, you know, uh, uh, open-ended yeah. learning. That was declared to be an impossibility. Uh, and and they, although they acknowledged the existence of transmitted culture, they had nothing to say about it. And their big idea was that what, what they called innate uh, culture, um, which was, um, uh, or excuse me, evoked culture, which uh, yeah. which is just basically this triggering that takes uh, uh, that takes place. And so, and so there was a huge gap between the Cosmides Tubi version of evolutionary psychology and the Boyd Richardson tradition of of cultural evolution, which after all is an open-ended process. And so now we've, what we've seen uh, leading up to the present is an integration of those two things. And somehow the SSSM um, is, is part of evolutionary, part of the evolutionary picture. That's what it means for cultural evolution to be a very, very strong force. Yes. Uh, so this is more progress, which, uh, which required decades. And um, um, so there's all that. And Ed Wilson wasn't really a giant figure in all of that. Uh, I think uh, there were other major actors there. We've named them, Cosmides, yeah. Tubi, Boyd, Richardson. Uh, they were the ones occupying the center, uh, the center stage for, for much of that. Yeah. Uh, so I want to I wanna talk about the group selection stuff and also ecosystems, social conquest of the earth. But um, what I, I do want to talk about something I think Ed was a, uh, a a pretty big figure by the end of his life, you know, by around like plus or minus ten years, year two thousand, and that's uh, conservation, environmentalism, and um, you know, I I'm just curious, do you know where that came from? Because I just assumed he's a biologist, he's a country boy. I mean, there's just all sorts of natural dispositions, aesthetics, and values that would feed into that. Well, right. I mean, he he thought himself first and foremost a naturalist. His advice to <clears throat> to young scientists was first pick an organism you love and and then study it. Important questions will will follow. He delighted in nature. He was a systematist. I mean, so when he was at Harvard, he was traveling the world cataloging ant species from all over the all over the world, and so diversity was important to him, and he he made space for it to actually make efforts to protect diversity. This brings us back to island biogeography, by the way. So let's tie up that loose end that in the 50s when he needed to provide a counterweight to uh, molecular biology. That meant by putting these disciplines, whole, you know, comparative taxonomy and, and basically whole organism biology on a more scientific foundation, take them out of this natural history era and to be able to provide some laws, some theories as to as to these these patterns and and the theory of island biogeography basically was a predictive framework for uh, the diversity of species on islands and not just real islands but any island-like habitat. So mountaintops separated by valleys or forest remnants separated by 
um, by uh, a development. And, um, and so by teaming up with Robert MacArthur, who was an ecologist and with mathematical expertise, they managed to uh, provide this theoretical framework. So that was a, a achievement of the first rank, I think. And, and it stood for what other people were also doing, providing a mathematical and theoretical framework for nature at the level of whole organisms and above. Whole organisms, populations, communities, ecosystems, biomes, all of that. Yeah, uh, so some, so uh, Hopi Hoekstra at, at Harvard, uh, I was emailing with her this week, and I'll just, you know, whatever. I mean, I think she was, she'll be okay with me talking about this. Uh, she says that one of the underrated, uh, just because of sociobiology and all these other things and the conservation, one of the underrated aspects of Ed's legacy uh, is that, you know, he really, really uh, kept the flame of organismic biology uh, going at Harvard. And, you know, you already alluded to that. You already talked about it. I think he talked about it extensively in Naturalist from what I remember. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's a big deal. And, you know, people outside of, you know, say the world of Harvard, or the world of academia, biology, uh, you know, they, they don't appreciate it. But, I mean, you know, there was there was a period there where it's like, you know, DNA, like, you know, we have bitten of the apple and we are like the gods. Like it was so seductive <laughs> to so many people. And, you know, I, I myself, like, you know, I'm of an age where molecular biology was still like, it still is obviously super huge, but um, you know, there's a joke that a friend of mine said like in 19, in 1990 uh, the, the joke was like, what do you call a, a population? Uh, what do you call a population geneticist? And they said, uh, you know, emeritus. You know, it's, it's like nobody was doing that. And, you know, my former boss, Spencer Wells, uh, when he went to graduate school to study population uh, genetics, population biology, uh, he was his undergraduate mentors shook their head because they said that, uh, you know, like, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your mind? This has no future. And, you know, everything was, you know, biophysical, mechanistic and molecular. That's. That's where it stood at that point. And now I think we live in a much more pluralistic environment, you know, like, you know, systems biology is an overused term, but with whole genome sequences, um, you know, we're looking at everything now. And, you know, in terms of this, uh, you know, and I've talked to Richard McElrath, uh, Max Planck, like uh, the whole field of cultural evolution that you've been talking about, you've been, you've been doing this for decades now, you know, like you, Boyd, Richardson, but now there is a whole field uh, there's a whole group of laboratories and scientists that are working together. And so the study of evolution, uh, the study of biology uh, is just so much more fully fleshed out in a way than I think it was 50 years ago, uh, partly because we have more data, you know, more resources, whatnot. But uh, I think Ed Wilson, you know, he was there throughout all of it and he was part of it. And one of the things that he was part of is the argumentic group selection, which you talked about. And, you know, you're obviously a big deal in multi-level selection theory. You've been one of the main expositors and theorists. Um, in in about 2010, Ed Wilson um, was co-author of a paper with, I think, Karina Ternita and Martin Nowak. And uh, it basically suggested, I, from what I, it's a long time ago I read the paper, uh, but basically it kind of pushed a lot of inclusive fitness uh, work to the side and promoted its own view, which, you know, to some extent uh, was depicted as a resurrection of group selection. But, I mean, I think, as you've indicated, and other people have indicated, uh, E.O. Wilson has always thought group selection was, was a big deal. 
and then his book Social Conquest of the Earth took that, and that resulted in a huge backlash from a lot of researchers in population genetics and evolutionary genetics. And can you can you talk about that from your perspective, which obviously is going to be your perspective, but just so that people on the inside understand, or people on the outside, uh, they get a sense, you know, this guy, E.O. Wilson, was doing science till the end. He was very active in scientific debates to the end. Well, that's for sure. So we can make that point. And with his biodiversity, I mean, you, 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 um, there's about three big things you've just been talking about. Um, as I've been, let me address each of them. Um, on conservation, you know, he, he has this gift. Um, maybe his greatest gift is to think in terms of whole fields and, and sweeping new things coming in. And that was true for his half-Earth uh, concept. He called it a moonshot himself. You know, I mean, how are we going to save this all? You know, it's, it's whole regions, biodiversity that we have to save, not particular species. And a moonshot, rather than many separate efforts, would be to save half the Earth. for, for And so that was like, a, you know, a genius public relations move. That's something that gets conveyed in two words, half-Earth. And then it goes on from there. Um, it's aspirational. That's another point to make about Ed. He wasn't just trafficking in scientific ideas. They were value-laden. These were things that have value. Nature has value. Um, he has wonderful language about how, you know, destroying a rainforest is like burning a Renaissance painting to cook dinner. So, so um, he imbued things with, uh, with, um, uh, with value. So, uh, and then back to... Uh, it's, it's fascinating to remember that the distinction between proximate and ultimate causation, which is a very, very basic distinction, um, wasn't, wasn't articulated until the 1960s by Ernst Marr. We're talking about the 50s for the genetic molecular biology revolution, which was all reductionistic, all proximate um, mechanism, basically. And then the very distinction between proximate and ultimate, which where is just part of what we all learned today, wasn't even made until 19, a decade after that by Harvard's Ernst uh, Marr, um, Ed's senior and, and colleague. Then we have Tim Bergen's Four Questions in the 60s, which are basically, they're identifying the functional aspects, which, which, do, not have, which do not require mechanistic thinking. We can, we can understand the, the functional organization of organisms just on the basis of natural selection thinking, ultimate causation. As long as the physical basis of an organism results in heritable variation, that's the extent to which we can ignore the physical basis and concentrate on the shaping influence of natural selection. Okay, so, so and of course, whole organism biology, a fully rounded approach includes both proximate and ultimate, all four of Tinbergen's questions, but if you're not paying attention to the ultimate, which is the problem with molecular biology and a lot of cellular biology, is that it's imbalanced in the favor of mechanism and and, and proximate causation, then it's 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 just that. It's imbalanced. And so and so now I think part of the progress that's made is that this become more standard for the proximate ultimate distinction or the fourfold distinction of Tinbergen to to um, to be the way that we all do things now. That's another form of progress, basically. I think that uh, 
and that played a role in that. Not he wasn't a giant in that. It was mm. so, so many people. Uh, yeah. I named two others. You know, uh, Mar Tinbergen, um, mm-hmm. uh, still others. So this this is uh, uh, continues my quest of at the same time that I honor an icon like Ed Wilson to just also mm-hmm. to dishonor the concept of icons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, you did talk in your piece and we have alluded to to his mentoring and, um, you know, there are people who are young academics today that he mentored. And um, can you, can you just talk about like, if you knew like personally, like how important he felt that to be? Cause you know, there are, look, there's human variation in personality academics uh you know they had the same variation as a lot of people you know some people they're just like graduate students are there to pump out papers and just like get out of here you know i mean it's very transactional and then there are other academics uh the way i would describe it you know my personal experience in academia there's some people who you know they maintain their humanity (laughs) like you know the the fullness of their humanity uh with these graduate students with these people that are going to come and go over their career i mean what 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 was your uh, perception of ed like i mean well there's a there's a there's a something attributed to ed which i don't think i've ever seen in print um and um and it goes a little bit against that but so here it is and then i'll i'll interpret it um uh he is reputed to have said that the perfect graduate student is someone who slips a reprint under your door at six months intervals. And, um, and so um, uh, what that meant was that, you know, the graduate student was so capable all by himself yeah. that they were already functioning as an independent scientist and that you didn't need to hold their hand to very much. Um, uh, so uh, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some grad students who just, you know, were held about standards and if they didn't come up to it, then, um, uh, they might have, you know, they might not have, you know, I mean, Ed was too busy with his own yeah. work, just a lavish attention. So unless you were really, you know, very, very capable yourself, then, yeah. um, uh, then, um, uh, so, th- so there's, um, uh, so there's, yeah, that. I mean. I mean, there are people who talk about, you know, um, some some of the people, some of the correspondences that I've had have been like, well, you know, he's a great scientist, he's a great man, but like, you know, like he didn't know anything about, you know, Hymenatra systematics by the end, and he was too stubborn. To, so it was like he still had really intense scientific disagreements with his colleagues and his juniors and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, very. Uh, and I I make the point in my piece. Again, honoring him at the same time, just acknowledging that he's human, is that uh, all of his books are long on vision. Some of them are long on execution, but some of them are very short on execution. And so, you know, uh, the Insect Societies is long on execution. Uh, Sociobiology is pretty long on execution. By the time you get to Consilience, it's short on execution. He doesn't have, a, he hasn't made a serious study of religion and literature and the humanities and all of the all of these things. He's, he's stating an aspiration that there's a unity of knowledge, um, but he hasn't done the footwork and why would we expect him to? So, so, um, um, you know, so just, let's just get that out that, um, that, um, you know, he has 24 hours in a day, just like the rest of us. And, and um, I, 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 um, he's entitled to just state his vision and, and then have others to fill, fill it out. But um, so we can say that. 
right. So, um, so uh, one thing that I want to ask you about that I guess is uh, near the end of, of, of Ed's life, he got involved in this group selection controversy. Uh, there's a lot of raw feelings there. Um, and, you know, you've been involved in this over decades. It's kind of been uh, central uh, to your, uh, you know, academic career in many ways. And uh, Ed Wilson, you know, came out with this paper with uh, with Nowak and, and uh, Ternita. And uh, it was in, I think it was in Nature, so it's pretty high impact. I know a lot of behavioral, behavioral ecologists in particular I've actually talked to uh, really like that paper. Uh, most evolutionary geneticists I talk to do not like that paper as much. So um, from like the perspective of a scientist, uh, like w- where do you think these reactions are coming from? I know you've talked about tribalism and science and other things like that. Like, Could you speak to that a bit? So there's two papers to discuss. The first is my paper with that, titled Rethinking the Theoretical Foundation of Sociobiology, which was published in 2007, three years before his collaboration with Nowak and Tertina. Um, and that paper is all about uh, uh, group selection. We end that paper with the uh, best meme I ever coined, selfishness beats altruism within groups, altruistic groups beat selfish groups, everything else is commentary. So that was squarely about group selection. Now, the collaboration with um, um, Nowak and Tartina um, was actually on a different topic, believe it or not. Not many people make this distinction, but it's a very important one to make. It had to do basically with, with theoretical formulations of evolution. And if you take Hamilton's rule, it's a very simple equation or inequality uh, with only three terms, B, C, and R. And it assumes uh, additivity, basically. It assumes that the, the behavior is delivering a, 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 a benefit to a recipient and a cost to the, to the um, actor, and, and then there's a, a degree of relatedness between, between the two. And the question becomes, how generalizable can this formula become if we start to deal with other kinds of behaviors that are non-additive? Um, as you complexify the, the behaviors, and the population structure, can you, can you write it in the form of Hamilton's rule? And there's a degree to which you can, but Hamilton's rule gets much more complicated. Those three terms become compound terms. What we would recognize as the population structure, what used to be associated with R, now becomes associated with C, with the Bs and the Bs and the Cs, and so on and so forth. And so it turns out that Hamilton's rule as a, as a formula is not very generalizable. And what NOAC at all were doing were saying that they had a better formula for that was capable of, of handling a broader variety of cases. It's a completely different issue than group selection. Um, and then um, and so those that felt defensive about Hamilton's rule, or they they uh, were uh, it became controversial for uh, for that uh, uh, for that uh, reason. And I talked to Ed about that often, and he would al- he would always just say he had a phrase, you know, it's breaking their rice bowls. There must be some Chinese phrase about you know your rice bowl being broken, meaning you know this is yeah. my, your livelihood, and this is destroying your your um, livelihood. He would often dismiss the the comments there. And he had other things to say about ultrasociality, which I think reflected his naturalistic um, leanings, which I think were largely correct. I think, you know, uh, history is actually 
come down pretty well on the side of Ed on a lot of these uh, a lot of these issues. Ed plus, of course, the mathematicians that he was teaming up with there. Nice. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, you know, one thing I, I do have to say um, for the listeners, uh, you know, I have um, I have a lot of friends who knew Ed Wilson. And when I was younger, I had uh, one of my closest friends at undergraduate. She was, and she actually uh, went to OEB, uh, went to uh, Harvard to study in the organism biology group. But uh, she, like, uh, E.O. Wilson was one of her heroes, and she ended up getting to know him. Um, and so, you know, I just think of this as just some dude everyone knows. Um, but a lot of people don't know who he is. Uh, just check out uh, the books he's written uh, since like 19. 19- you know, since sociobiology, he's been like a book writing machine on a variety of scholarly, autobiographical, social, political, and scientific topics. Uh, I really like Naturalist. Uh, I think uh, it's really great, uh, you know, great just remembrance, autobiography, uh, scientific autobiography. But uh, there's just so many books uh, to check out and to read. And I would really recommend people do that because this was a person who was productive to the end. He apparently, um, do you know about his last book? Like if that's ever going to get published, David? There's something about I, ecosystems. Yeah, after he passed, I read the last two books that he wrote, uh, Genesis and and um, the Nature of Humans or something. Um, you know, I have to say that they're kind of weak, which should be again surprise no one because it's it's. Um, um, I mean, they're still well worth reading, but it's. Um, yeah. Um, and then his last big thing, and I I love him for this. When I when I say things like that, doesn't mean that I don't, you know, love and admire. Um, him and because he was such a visionary and it's always just some new fast whole field building thing and he'd have this glint in his eye and he said ecosystems ecosystems <laughs> is like the new frontier um and uh, he there's a little bit on the internet on that if you look uh you know ed wilson ecosystems you'll see that there's a short video and a little article on the on the eo wilson biodiversity website and of course part of this is the preservationist side as to uh, uh, we have to preserve all ecosystems that goes without saying but we also have to he said we have to understand why ecosystems exist why they persist why they have a kind of an equilibrium that we don't really know this and we need to um, and uh, and then in my uh, long piece on him I actually kind of take up that baton um, and I I carry that baton a little way in my uh, in my in my resembra- in my uh, my own uh, remembrance mm. uh, of him. So I mean, there's lots to say about ecosystems, and it, it, the work is being done. And so uh, and so, yeah. I mean, let that be um, obviously an important area of research. Yeah, if you guys are listening, obviously you can check the show notes. It's the six legacies of Edward O. Wilson at thisviewoflife.com. Um, it's it's one of the better, uh, definitely remembrances of his scientific career. Also, I, I do recommend um, if you have access to New York Times. Uh, I really liked Carl Zimmer's obituary because it wasn't all like you know sugars and spice and nice. You know there was some stuff from people who, you know, had had run-ins with E.O. Wilson. Um, so I want to know, um, you know, a little bit about you, uh, pro social world. Like, what is this? What are you trying to do? So pro-social world, the mission is to uh, consciously evolve the world that works for all. It's basically using evolutionary thinking in real-world settings. Uh, cultural evolution is great to study 
scientifically, but it's even more important to actually make it happen, basically. So how do we take our evolutionary knowledge and make the world better at all scales? Uh, it's very multi-level. We have to make the world better as individuals, small groups, and the whole planet, and every layer in between, multi-context, multi-level. And I think these ideas have matured to the point where we actually have a toolkit for uh, for doing just that. So I would say for any of your listeners that actually want to make the world a better place and to use scientific tools to do so, these evolutionary tools that Ed stands for to do so, then check out uh, ProSocial World, www.prosocial.world, and then um, see what we're doing. And, uh, and uh, there's multiple opportunities for engagement. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, how is, uh, I know uh, the Evolution Institute, some of its projects got a lot of you know, I don't know. I, I remember seeing some argument between you and Jerry Coyne. Um, like, what has the scientific response been uh, to this? Because, again, I think the main issue is you're using evolution to do policy, social stuff, and that scares people. Are, are people pretty relaxed this time? Yeah, I mean, they don't they don't invoke social Darwinism almost ever. Um, and that's a okay. good thing because that was um, um, uh, a red herring to... Uh, 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 to begin with, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to complain about what we're trying to do. It's so pro-social. You know, there's a question as to whether we succeed or not. There's a question of whether we add value to other positive change efforts. Uh, Jerry and I disagree on some things, mostly group selection, but we I we shouldn't disagree on that. I would hope. Um, and uh, so, uh, but no, I think that uh, these ideas have matured to the point where we can. And, and so, I mean, the bottom line here, which brings us back to group selection is that if you consider anything that we call pro-social, in other words, done on behalf of others or a group as a whole, then those behaviors are intrinsically vulnerable to the behaviors that we call self-serving. Self-serving, that's the basic dynamic of selfishness beats altruism within groups. And so pro-sociality is a social strategy. It can succeed, but only under special circumstances, only when between group selection overcomes within group selection. And unless you engineer the social environment with that in mind, then cultural evolution will still take place, but it'll result in problems, not solutions. All of the problems that confront us are the products of cultural evolution. And we need to be niche constructors, to use one buzzword, social engineers, to revive that term, um, although not in a manipulative and top-down way, it's very co-produced. Uh, but if we, don't, if we don't construct our social environments so that pro-social behaviors are the, are the strategies that evolve, then there is no hope for us. So uh, we can say that with a lot of clarity. And, um, and, um, and the best way to contest it is not on the sidelines, but by joining in the effort to really work in real-world settings to, uh, to uh, steward the process of cultural uh, evolution. Yeah, as they say in the startup world, to make a better world, like that, that's what we're aspiring to. Even if we fail, we fall short. Um, you know, that's what we all want to do. Uh, we're all on the same page and, you know, be respectful about our disagreements. But I think, you know, our ultimate goal is the same uh, as human beings who want to flourish and, and live in this world. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the great thing about talking about Ed Wilson. Um, 
he flourished and made a huge contribution. He will be remembered. Uh, he made a huge impact. And uh, that's the kind of thing that, you know, in smaller doses, probably most of us can only aspire, but uh, we want to do. And so um, I want to end with that. And thank you uh, for your time, David Sloan Wilson. Um, and again, uh, check out prosocialworld.com. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of other things that David's working on. Uh, like I like some of, uh, David's older papers on, uh, personality morphs, by the way, just put that oh, out there. Yes. Uh, yeah. like, I, yeah, I really, I really enjoyed those papers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of scientists, you know, guys, uh, a lot of scientists, like they, they write all these papers and, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, but you know, beyond a certain date, people aren't reading the papers anymore unless they're specialists, and that's sad. But you know, there's only so much time. Yeah. Well, thank you right. for uh, for all that you do, Rizab. Uh, you're you really are a great uh, bright light on the internet. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, some people would disagree with you, but you know, we'll not talk about those people right now. <laughs> Take care. Hey, everybody. So I am here with. Charles C. Mann, uh, author of 1491, 1493, uh, and uh, several other books, including one that will be coming out soon. So maybe we'll talk about that later um, at some other future podcasts. But right now, um, I want to talk about Charles' interactions with the late E.O. Wilson. And I want to talk about it partly just because, you know, when you do an obituary, you see things that are above the surface a lot of the time. But, uh, you know, there are things about human beings that, you know, people kind of hide or they kind of you know, de-emphasize. But, you know, I think the full person is important. Like, you know, we're, we're, we are honoring uh, a scientist and science is all about the truth, whether you like the truth or you dislike the truth or however you feel about it. That's immaterial. Right. And so um, I want to know about uh, the interactions that you had, Charles, with E.O. Wilson. This is mostly with the island biogeography. And can you tell us about where you were, like what your role was and, and how you interacted with him? Okay. At the time, this is in the first um, interactions were in the early 1980s, and I was a correspondent for Science Magazine in the news division. And uh, I was talking with my editor about uh, what was coming out about the extinction crisis. And I said to him, there's something that's always bothered me about reading about biodiversity in the extinction crisis, which is if we don't know how many species there are, like at all, which is, you know, sort of was widely believed at, at that time, how, how do we know that more are going extinct now and that there's a crisis? I mean, how do we know this if we're basically working with such a degree of ignorance? And he said, well, you should go and find out. So I called up um, Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich, uh, uh, Eel Wilson, you know, the main people behind the idea that there was an ex extinction crisis. And it turned out that there, the entire thing was based on something called the species area curve, which is part of the theory of island biogeography, which Wilson MacArthur put together in 1967. And that there, the idea in that is that islands maintain dynamic equilibrium between immigration and extinction with a number of species being determined solely by the area and the distance from the source area. And that, um, the area part of it was covered by this thing called the species area curve, which is S equals C A to the Z, um, where the S is the number of species, the A is the area, and C and Z are these constants. And I was just amazed by this because nobody knows what C and Z are, right? Uh, uh, we just don't really have any sense of what the, um, and secondly, what they're saying here is that 
species are going extinct entirely because their habitat is shrinking. There's no other real thing going on. So that, uh, that it's just this one extremely simple process. And it happens more or less immediately. Actually built into the theory, but not part of it, is this thing called relaxation, which is that after the habitat shrinks, they, um, the number of species diminishes at some unknown rate. And of course, if the rate is really long, then the prediction is unfalsifiable. And I looked at this, I was stunned because it ignores habitat fragmentation, invasive species, overexploitation, pollution, all the other things that people complain about. So, and it's still going on, by the way. There's a paper in Nature in 2004 that got global headlines predicting climate change would, by 2050, wipe out as much as third of the Earth's species. And it was entirely due to the species area curve. And it looked to me completely specious. And so I got on the phone and I talked to him and I, he just hand waved as to why this was actually a sound argument. So I wrote a fairly tough piece in science. And it wasn't just me. There were other, many other scientists, uh, and particularly two very good biologists, one of whom was Wilson's students named Connor McCoy, who would, who would criticize this. And he got, we got kind of upset. And uh, so I got a phone call from him and say, say, essentially, how dare you? And I said, look, where, what's there? I, I, I tell me what's there and I'll write something to show me it's there, but you didn't, you just waved your hands. And so then he called back and he said, okay, okay. So we're going to, we're, we'll, I'll look at this, this again. Um, and I wrote a book later about biodiversity with a friend of mine, the late Mark Plummer, um, that went into considerably more detail. And, uh, he, and, uh, Ehrlich and uh, a bunch of the green organizations organized, uh, you know, a kind of campaign against the book. Um, the most memorable part of it was there used to be these uh, breakfasts that you would go to for uh, journalists in, in Washington, D.C. And uh, they found out who was going to my particular little breakfast and uh, gave every single one of them um, a, a paper denouncing me that they sort of cobbled together um, really in pretty personal terms. And I, I, I was floored by this, uh, but it also made me feel like, wow, I must be onto, uh, onto something. So that was, you know, the one set of things where it turned out he really had um, some sharp, sharp uh, elbows. Then the, then the later came in, you know, 15 years past with Consilience, um, which is his book in 1998 which is that uh, he says that the brain, in his view, is shaped by these epigenetic rules that create these hereditary regularities of mental development, and his phrase that animate and channel the acquisition of culture. And again, I read this, and he's just way over his skis. There's really, especially back then, almost no evidence that any of this, is, that any of his picture of the brain um, and what's going on there is true. It might be true, but there, there's really no evidence. And again, I had the same thing. I called him up and I said, look, I, you know, help me with this. Show me where the evidence is because I'm about to write a really tough review in the Washington Post. And um, I, I just didn't, didn't see it. And he called me up and he, and, and he yelled at me um, again. He said, I've been <laughs> following your career and so forth. And, you're, and he said, you're anti-environment. Uh, you're, you're this horrible anti-green. You're part of the Browns and, and, and so forth. He really lost his temper, which considering he's actually a pretty even-tempered guy was uh, in a weird way was an accomplishment. So I, I feel like this is 
my main critique of him is that here's this guy who's this extraordinary scientist, really, as an entomologist, one of the great entomologists who's, who's ever lived. And entomology is like a really important science, right? Insects are really important. But he didn't really want to be an entomologist. He was like a comic who wanted to play King Lear. He wanted to be a major thinker about evolutionary theory. And he would time and time again write these books, which for the reader was really weird because he would be just going further and further out on a limb. And then at the end of the book, the, the limb would snap and the book would crash and you'd close the book with a wince. I mean, that was that was my experience so often of, of reading his stuff um, and kind of tangled with him. When my tangle was with him was this feeling that he didn't know really what he didn't know. Yeah, so I've heard I've heard these sorts of stories from a lot of great scientists, and I don't want to psychoanalyze too much. Uh, I don't know, like James Watson, uh, mm -hmm. like 20 years ago, was talking about how he had read some stuff or talked to some people and we were going to win the war on cancer in like six months or so, you know, like something yeah. ridiculous like that. And OK, he's got a Nobel Prize and he's got these credentials and, uh, you know, he's look, he's got a Nobel Prize, structured yeah. DNA, big deal. So, of course, you think a lot of yourself. Uh, but then you think maybe you're just special in some way. Maybe you have some deep insights and you're I, it sounds like you're saying E.O. Wilson had some of that. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine used to call it white coat syndrome. And there used to be a rule um, from the Federal Trade Commission that uh, nobody in commercials could wear a white coat because the viewer would think they were doctors and um, would give them too much cred credence. And I sort of feel like if you get to be an important enough scientist, you start to think that you're wearing the white coat for everything. And, you know, it's it's a rare scientist who doesn't let those accolades go to to his head unless you have you know biologists signing on um to stuff about nuclear power you know that that kind of thing those open letters from scientists and you look down and you think like half of these guys don't know anything about this subject yeah uh yeah i mean i i totally agree with you actually um i i do feel that uh so okay so I want to bring this back a little bit to E.O. Wilson. But sure, sure. I'm just making a general point. Yeah. No, no, no. But there's a lot of like you're illustrating like something general in E.O. Wilson. So, you know, I I followed mostly his science uh, in terms of I guess my attitude was like, it's great that E.O. Wilson wants to conserve biodiversity. But why do I have to particularly listen to? I mean, it seems like it's almost a normative claim. Yeah. And so my, my perception here is uh, a lot of people in the public and I'm not one of those. Maybe I'm not the public. I don't know. Uh, they wanted the imprimatur uh, from a scientist, a scientist. And so do you think what's going on here is, and I'm not saying, I mean, he probably consciously knew this, like, oh, he's a great scientist. He's done all these things. And so he promotes environmentalism, conservationism, which I think that's fine, you know, but they want to give it the authority of science, of trusting the science. Do you think that's what was going on there? Because I, I actually haven't thought about it in detail, but it, I wonder now. I do. I do think it's somewhat that way. And, uh, you know, speaking of um, putting the authority of science, remember his book, Biophilia from 2009, and yeah. <laughs> which he takes this idea from Eric Fromm, right? The psychoanalyst who is exactly the sort of scientist he spends, a researcher that he spends, you know, other parts of his book dissing and says that out of nowhere, he invents this innate tendency to seek connections with nature that somehow is genetically encoded with us. It's like, what? <laughs> Where did that okay, come I, from? I, I do I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And uh 
I, I what I what I thought at the time is like I have some people that uh, I think E.O. Wilson should be introduced to, and actually, you know, part of the part of the whole like Lewinton versus Wilson, uh, you know, something like Ulrika Circus Strauss talked about. Yeah. Like, part of it is just a cultural difference where Lewinton is uh, urban, uh, you know, from wealthy upper middle class Jewish American background, and E.O. Wilson is from uh, you know lower middle class kind of uh, southern rural white, uh, you know, outdoorsy nature. Na- you know, nature orientation. And this is actually has been a difference between uh, British and American evolutionary biologists where it's like almost uh, like a necessary precondition that a British evolutionary biologist has like a naturalistic bent. Like that's how they got into it. Well, whereas in the United States, you know, with the fly room, I, it, it's somewhat mm-hmm. different, much more diverse. And so um, what I remember during the whole biophilia thing was, you know, I think you're projecting your own psychology <laughs> on other people, which like I share. I mean, I'm from Oregon. Okay, I I, I share his preferences in some ways, uh, but I also have a friend, and you know, I remember a friend who's actually a, a geneticist, but he's a computational guy, kind of like me. But uh, you know, we had a discussion one time. He's like, I'd rather just play a video game. Like, I, I don't know why people. I mean, he was living in California at the time. <laughs> I don't I don't know why people are going to Sierra Nevadas. I don't know why Yo somebody's so cool. You can look up the pictures online. <laughs> and you know. I mean, is he a freak? Is my you know? And I, I have to say, like looking at the revealed preferences of how many people go to the national parks, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a highly cultural thing. Um, I do think that there's a sense of also like you know not becoming well, kind of becoming an evolutionary psychologist. So like you know, like the Sumerians had temples, the ziggurats, the pyramids. Okay, like there's something psychologically where you look up. There's a mountain. There's kind of a sense of being overpowered, a connection to something bigger. It's literally bigger. Like you can make those sorts of analysis. But I think E.O. Wilson's idea of biophilia was very, very granular and specific. And I think it was reflecting a certain uh, naturalistic bent, which, you know, is found in particular subcultures in the United States and or like, you know, Chinese like painting, like these sorts of things. Like that's that's part of human culture and human tradition, but it's not exclusive. Right. Right. And it's also. um you know, uh, part of a class thing. I mean, if you go to uh, people who actually live in nature, you know, when I went to West, you know, been to West Africa and places like that, I mean, they know everything there is to know about their environment, but I don't think they kind of feel this reverence in the way that he, that he's talking about. These are people who, you know, they're, they have to make a living at it. They, they're completely unromantic about what they're seeing. Whereas he's a guy who... Um, if you're a biologist like him and you go down to the Amazon, what do you do? You're looking for new bugs. You're looking for new species of some sort. You go get on the boat, you get to a community, you drive as far out on the road as you possibly can. And there you get to the very edge, right? Where people are just beginning to build, build stuff. And that's, that's where you do your field work. And that is always the ugliest stuff um, from the point of view of, you know, an aesthetics of somebody like me. And that's where he spent his life. And so he, he said, this is really bad. Um, we need to, we need to stop it. And he's really immured. And that's why he ends up with something like half earth, which is one of his last books. The one where he said his proposed setting aside half the earth for, um, nature with no people, um, living in it. And, you know, you can just imagine how well that went over in a place like rural Brazil, which is, of course, part of the area that he's imagining will be, where all the people will be um, kicked out of their land and put, you know, to live in um, somewhere somewhere else unstated. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I've said this before, you know, some biologists, when they talk about biodiversity and species and extinction, and these things, uh, I actually tend to agree with them a lot of the time. But I also think they sometimes confuse their own strongly held priors that are partly just 
I mean, it's wrapped up in professional concerns, professional fixations right. uh, with kind of a, you know, other people, do they have these concerns? Uh, you know, do they have other needs in their lives? I mean, if you're a tenured biologist, you have guaranteed upper middle class-ish lifestyle. I mean, you're, you're a very post-materialistic person, post-materialist values in a way. And uh, despite E.O. Wilson's class background, uh, where, you know, they struggle now and then, um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, he had a long career as a as a pretty affluent professional, and so that's who he was. And now, you know, we're talking right now about, um, you know, his enthusiasm for environmentalism and whatnot uh, is kind of ironic in a way, uh, I think, considering like the 1970s of sociobiology controversies where he was vilified as like a reactionary and all of that stuff. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what to think about like these two faces of E.O. Wilson here, you know, and his perception. Yeah, part of it was um, when he was a kid, um, and he writes about this in his autobiography, and we talked about it, um, he was uh, kind of an asocial um, loner, a fair number of biologists and scientists in gen- general were, and rather than playing with other kids, so forth, he liked to go around and uh, and look at ants, um, which is fine. I, this is not a diss in, in any way. Um, one of the remarkable things is that he was probably the first person as a teenager to recognize that um, South American fire ants had come into the United States. That was one of the first things that he, uh, he, he actually saw them uh, coming into uh, Mobile where he, where he was, where he was raised. Um, so, but this is the sort of guy who has, for instance, a tremendous value on the place where he feels at home, which is, you know, around the the ants. And he sees other people don't, and they frankly don't even like them. And uh, he becomes concerned with protecting this. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Wilson was the doyen of organismic biologists at Harvard during a time. And I talked about this with uh, David Sloan Wilson um, Mm -hmm. and others. You know, he defended organismic biology. And uh, just for the listener out there, um, this is not totally true, you know, but as a generality, you know, the, the stylized fact is a lot of geneticists, uh, they don't really know much biology. Uh, I mean, that's, this is a joke. It's an exaggeration. But you compare uh, genetics. So, for con- concretely, I have friends who are plant geneticists and I have friends who are plant biologists. And what is the difference between the two? And it turns out it's not just some weird semantic difference of specificity. Uh, a plant geneticist knows something about plants, but really they use plants as tools to understand, you know, genetic variation, inheritance, these sorts of dynamics. You know, they might be agricultural geneticists doing, you know, crop development and stuff like that. A plant biologist, on the other hand, uh, they can tell you in detail what the structure of the cotyledon is and, uh, you know, all of these like organs and cell types. Uh, and often they have like a particular plant, uh, like they can tell you the lifestyle of an Arabidopsis, something like, you know, all of these details. That's an organismic biologist. Uh, that is a type of biologist. Uh, I mean, I have to be candid. I think often they develop strong, like almost an emotional fervor about the organism that they study, you know? And it used to be, I think this is much less now, but um, it was certainly the case in the 60s and 70s that there was uh, a lot of clash between them. And uh, the the organismic guys were very slow to recognize the value of um, genetics. And the ge- new geneticists, you know, people like Watson were these sort of young, brash guys who told the old fogies like Wilson, you know, that your, your, <laughs> your day is done. I think there's much more respect for each other now. Um, but it's it's still there that clash, and Wilson yeah. was yeah. really hit by it. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that totally makes sense. I mean, so, um, you know, obviously, I, I think a lot of listeners are not entirely shocked. Uh, you know, a uh, very accomplished, eminent scientist who became a public intellectual who was on the scene as a public person for, like, what, almost 50 years. Not quite 50, but almost, like, let's say from 1975 uh, to 2021, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's not surprising that, you know, there's a little ego, a little brashness, a little, like, do you know who I am? Who are you to challenge me? Attitude, right? Um, I'm curious as, as an observer of of scientists and science. So I was thinking of like E.O. Wilson. Uh, Watson's up there. Uh, he is. There's going to be some. I don't want to say. It. You know what I'm saying? Like he's old, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have Richard Dawkins. I think he's in his 70s. Even Steven Pinker in his late 60s now. I think. Uh, so um, there's this generation of these scientists. Uh, who, you know, have written and communicated, engaged with the public. So, you know, Lewontin, for example, especially the first half of his career, was extremely influential, prominent population geneticist. But uh, aside from the New York Review of Books, he never really, uh, you know, became the public intellectual that, say, Stephen Jay Gould was. Uh, what do you think about, like, the new crop? Uh, like, you know, what have you observed? Like, do you think there's a difference? So uh, just in terms of putting my cards on the table, I wonder sometimes if uh, – the way the funding structure and the professionalization and the hoop jumping and everything works, the way it works out is, you know, there's really not those type of particular uh, literary uh, intellectuals coming out of science. Yes, they're science communicators, but, uh, you know, putting out a Twitter account is not the same as writing Naturalist or Wonderful Life. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, there are some. There are very definitely some people uh, around, but the it's hard to know whether there's a difference in science and scientists, or that the media environment is so different. I mean, when Wilson was starting, um, heck, when I was starting, uh, you know, it was pretty clear what you did. You you wrote something, you know, for popular consumption in the New York Review of Books or the New York Times Magazine or Smithsonian or something. An editor would notice you, and then. Um, they might contact you and then you would write books. And that was, there was a sort of, uh, that, that was the way things worked. Um, and now it's just wildly different and nobody's really sure how things work. And so you've got people like Jacqueline Gill, um, you know, who go around and give tremendous speeches, all those people in Revive and Restore, tremendous communicators, people like George Church and, and so forth. But they don't seem to have you know, this, the, the, because the media landscape is so fragmented, they don't command the attention that sociobiology commanded in 1975 when it was reviewed on the front page of the New York Times book review. And, you know, that was what everybody who was interested in literary culture read. And now there's just nothing that that is that is like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this might be a commentary not on the scientists we produce, but the whole, uh, or it could be both, a uh, media ecosystem. Yeah, I do wonder about that. Um, it seems like, you know, this isn't like the end of an era. There are other people, but uh, there's a particular type of scientific public intellectual. And now we have, I mean, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's yeah. tweets. And I mean, look, I, I'm not a hater. I find them quite amusing. Yeah. But uh, that is a quite a different thing than reading The Blind Watchmaker at 14. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there, you know, you, it is true um, that there aren't these people. Well, actually there is one, there's a big counterexample right now um, come to think of it, which is the dawn of everything. Um, that book by David Graeber and David Wengrow. Yes. Um, that's that kind of 
big synoptic, um, also kind of bomb throwing uh, book that uh, that the blind watchmaker was. And, uh, you know, it's coming, it's, it's coming in a different area and a different, different field, but so there is some of that. So let's, let's, let's say that it's the change is, is real, but it's not complete. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a, yeah. Well, I mean, like, we don't need to dichotomize, right? It's not never, nothing's black and white. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a gradualist when it comes to evolutionary process, not punctuated <laughs> equilibrium. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, it's like, I've, I think I've seen the gradual change in my own life and, you know, maybe it's better, maybe it's worse, but it is what it is as a descriptive matter. So, yeah, um, I really appreciate you taking time out, Charles, uh, to talk about E.O. Wilson and your experiences. Uh, you know, to, to give a, a, a different sense. Uh, and I think that that's good. I mean, uh, if uh, if there's no if there's no grayness, uh, if there's no complexity to a person's character, I mean, like, are they even human? I mean, come on. Uh, obviously, right. obviously, like, you know, E.O. Wilson, you know, was was no saint because he was a human uh you know there are, there, there's no such thing that you know again the the uh, carl zimmer obituary actually did mention uh him being rude during conferences and it's like oh yeah uh, a senior scientist being rude oh yeah that that never happens yeah <laughs> yeah he i remember um i'm friendly with the writer emma maris um do, do you know her stuff uh really a terrific um environmental writer very very smart and uh, she's sort of saying, you know, these novel ecosystems that are the conservationist nightmare, what's wrong with them? And so she wrote this book called Rambunctious Gardens that said, you know, get over it. Ecosystems change. People come in, they mix around. It's okay. And he was furious at her and uh, uh, went out of his way to uh, go do something that she was speaking at and denounce her from the floor. So, you know, <laughs> there's a little passion there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all good. All right. Uh, well, uh, thank you for taking time out again. And oh, My um, pleasure. Uh, yeah, Always yeah. a pleasure to talk with you, Razib. Yeah, and Happy New Year and, 20, and 2022. Right. Maybe all uh, be much better off um, this year than the, than the last. No COVID. No COVID. Pray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bye. This podcast for kids.